One ironic feature uh, or aspect of modern life uh, I was thinking about this week. Uh, People are afraid of just about anything and everything except for God. American Psychological Association has come up with over 500 phobias that people are commonly diagnosed with. These include our fear of germs, spiders, doctors, heights. We are xenophobic, we're afraid of strangers, ophidiophobic, afraid of snakes, ephebiophobic, afraid of teenagers, <laughs> lawyerophobic, <laughs> always. <laughs> we fear embarrassment, criticism, failure, disappointment, but not God. The quintessential picture people have of God is that which is on the top of the Sistine Chapel uh, of a very old white man with a long beard dressed in robes and reaching out to us with a a benignly outstretched uh, hand. Uh, Hardly a frightening picture. I mean, if we're being honest, we're more frightened of getting a sunburn than we are of facing God and coming into his presence at some time later in the future. Even if God exists, you know, he's certainly nothing to be afraid of. Uh, he's probably pretty lucky to be getting such a great guy like me on his team. And I'm, I mean, almost the modern notion is he's lucky that we even uh, choose to uh, recognize his existence at all. This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. Take your bullets in. Or turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. We have been going through the epistle to Hebrews for now the last four months. Next week's going to be our last Sunday, and then we're going to uh, do a series through the Psalms. But here at the end of Hebrews 12, what's very clear is, is simply that we, we do need to fear God. Uh, in the proper sense of the word, and I'll talk more about what is the proper sense of that word, but we, we have reason to fear God, and, and we need to fear God. And the fact is, every one of us in this sanctuary, we struggle with that concept. We struggle to live with a great sense of the weightiness and the utter majesty of God. We struggle to relate to God with reverential awe, and, um, and not like our buddy. So Hebrews 12, 18, um, the final contrast that he makes between the old covenant and the new covenant, between Moses and, and Jesus, and here between two mountains, Mount Sinai and the heavenly Mount Zion, or heavenly Jerusalem that will come down to earth at the end of time. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, or to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was uh, commanded. And this is a reference to Exodus 19. Uh, What is commanded, that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The whole sight was so, so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You have not come to that mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion. Zion was the uh, very top 
of the um, city of Jerusalem. It was, it was the highest part of the mountain complex that Jerusalem was built on. And the highest part of the city would have been at the, the top of Mount Zion, which is where the temple was located. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly and to the church of the firstborn. Remember, it was the firstborns who were redeemed by the Passover lamb. The whole church is is called a group of firstborns uh, whose names are written in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A wrong interpretation of the passage is to reach the end of verse 24 and, and say, Phew, you know, uh, it was pretty grim in the Old Testament when God used to be you know, mean and cranky and all that. But, but phew, now we're, we're in the New Testament. And so God's just nice and sympathetic. And you, know, you can just come as you are with your espresso in your hand. Relax. But notice here the argument. It's a, from the lesser to greater argument. He says, you know, how much more should we fear God and listen to his voice now that we know God through his son, Jesus Christ? So the answer, it's not, you know, relax, chill. It's to take it all the more seriously. Verse 25, in his language, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised through the prophet Haggai, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens at the end of human history. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken the resurrected things of the future, they may remain. Therefore, and this is the take home, (laughs) since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For what are those last words? For our God is a consuming fire. As the children of Israel approached this burning mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, It was obviously not a cozy experience. The mountain was trembling violently like a raging volcano. And inside, their souls were doing much the same. They were quaking violently. So much so that when God began to speak to them, uh, they didn't say, Kumbaya, (laughs) isn't this great? We get to hear the voice of God. No, they said, they put their fingers in their ears and they say, Stop. We can't take it. As is so often the case in the Bible, when the presence of God comes close to people, it's more often than not a horrifying experience. It's a devastating experience. Even Moses, who we would regard as the greatest man in the world at that time, the most holy man alive at that time, even Moses is there trembling, it says, with fear. This was the same Moses that God appeared to earlier in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. 
and the fire that that uh, consumed uh, that did not consume the bush. Uh, then God appears to the children of Israel in a pillar of fire as He leads them uh, out of the land of Egypt. Then He appears to Elijah in a chariot of fire. Then He appears to Daniel as a man with flaming eyes, and it says a face like lightning. And then to Ezekiel as a fiery figure surrounded by wheels of fire. One of the ways for us to misinterpret Mount Sinai and, and all of these fire references is, is to think that it's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, a tiny man hides behind a curtain and cloaks himself with pillars of fire and loud crashes and a big booming voice that speaks from a, a big green talking head. And so you say, oh, that's it. You know, the Judeo-Christian God, I get it. He, he needs to intimidate us so that we, like the cowardly lion, will obey him and follow his ways. No, on the contrary, Sinai is God's mercy. This is not false bravado trying to emotionally manipulate us to do something. It is God's way of saying that you are not ready for me. You're not ready to meet me. You are like a statue of wax, and I am a consuming fire. You see, all the fire references, and especially Mount Sinai, is God's way of peeling back the layers of heaven to show us how corruptible flesh and blood wouldn't last even a second in his holy presence. 89% of Americans, or that was, I think, the most recent Gallup poll, 89% of Americans say, yeah, I I believe God. Now, that's down about, I think it's like 7% over just in the last decade. I mean, we've I've become a much more secular culture. But even of those 89% who say, yes, God, um, this is not the God that they actually believe in. They, they don't believe in the God who is a consuming fire. And one of the ways we know this, you know, there's a lot of, we, we go and we try to share the Christian message with our non-Christian friends and, and family members. But what we, we do, we try to share our faith. And one of the ways we were taught to share our faith is with the bridge diagram. How many learned the bridge diagram? A lot of us. You've got God over here. And you've got the people over here. And between which, there's this vast gulf separating us. And one of the things we do to try to show how, how this separation can be be crossed as you draw a horizontal cross, right? cross, and that shows how we can be made right with God and, and cross the divide. Well, the fact is, many people, really most people out there, don't feel or believe that such a gulf exists at all. I mean, they're like, yeah, I was tracking with you when you said God and, and people and Jesus is okay, but, um, but what, a vast distance between me and God? No, God is with me. God is in me. God likes me. God helps me. I'm real close to God. We're we're on pretty good terms. Virtually nobody out there who affirms a belief in God has a sense of the fearful holiness of God and the transcendent otherness of God and what it can do to people like you and me who are nothing but wax statues when we come near the flame. Am I right? Let's go back to the Isaiah 6 reading. Notice what happened when Isaiah experiences the presence of God high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. Uh, Isaiah said, wonderful, I'm loving this. 
Now, Isaiah said his, his response is to fall on his face and say, Woe is me, for I am undone. And then the next line, for me, the next line is the key. Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of, of unclean lips. What? He's a prophet. He's the greatest of the prophets. He's the greatest preacher that ever lived. You have anybody who reads the Old Testament oracles of Isaiah, and they will tell you that is the most eloquent, most beautiful writings in all of ancient uh, literature. There's nothing like Isaiah. His mouth was the very best part of his existence. The dude had a golden tongue. And yet when, when that when that wonderfully, beautifully, eloquent mouth comes into the presence of God's holiness. The very best part of the man turns out to be woefully inadequate and flawed. And this is what always happens when people actually meet God. At the end of the book of Job, Job gets into the presence of God and afterwards he says, I despise myself and I throw myself to the ground in dust and ashes. When Peter is out on the boat and he has the amazing catch of fish, uh, he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am an unclean man. Isn't it interesting? But what, what is the posture they take on? They fall to the ground because they're like wax. Isaiah confesses his sin. Well, what happens in the next part of the story? I purposely didn't include it in our reading, so I got to tell it now. Isaiah confesses his sin, and an angel explodes out toward him. We can only imagine what he's thinking at this moment. Probably, I mean, if I got an angel charging me, after I've just said that, woe is me, I'm undone, he's probably thinking, my life is over. It is curtains for me. The fire of God is going to consume me. It says that a seraphim flies toward him. Does anybody remember what the seraphim were? That's the word in Hebrew translated, transliterated, burning ones. It is a fire angel, literally a fire angel that explodes toward him. Um, a fire angel who goes to the burning altar and he takes a fiery coal from that altar the coal is so hot that, that the fire angel can't even pick it up in his own hand. <laughs> but he has to use tongs in order to pick up. And he flies at him with, the, with this coal that is too hot to touch. And he takes with the burning tongs that coal and presses it upon Isaiah's lips. And instead of melting his face off, it burns away the sin and purifies his unrighteousness. See, that's the fire. The moment Isaiah confesses the filth of his lips, God moves towards him in grace and pardons him, and he is is cleansed. That's the beauty of the fire. And that's the first point. Secondly, what about, secondly, the reality that I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon? uh, Fear. How are we to fear God? You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but a fool despises wisdom and discipline. We're told many, many times that we need to fear God. But there's elsewhere in the Bible, like in John's epistle, where he says something contradictory. He says, perfect love does what to fear? It casts out fear. It's almost as if there, there's a fear and then there's a fear. How do we, 
How do we tell the difference between the two? And I would say, simply, the difference between the two is, uh, is the direction the fear moves us. For example, when Adam feared God in the garden, where did his fear lead him? It, it led him to hide. When the children of Israel feared God at Mount Sinai, where did their fear lead them? To hide, it led them to, to hide from the presence and from the voice of God. Wrong fear drives us away from God's presence. Uh, wrong fear is, it's not so much the fear of the Lord as it is the terror of the Lord. And I think that's actually what happens to people when they first have an encounter with God. When they initially meet with the God of the Bible, it begins something akin to the terror of the Lord. It pushes us away as we realize just how great his holiness is and just how great our sin is. But then once we are pardoned by the coal, so to speak, we are pardoned by God through Christ, our terror-like fear turns and gives way to a healthy fear which draws us closer into his presence. That's why Eugene Peterson describes the fear of the Lord as, quote, not shaking in your boots panic, but enraptured with loving fascination attention. Fire, if you are Icarus, with waxen wings, is certainly a danger. But fire, if you are clad in golden armor, is actually something that invites you in. The true fear of the Lord is not dread, but astonishment. The true fear of the Lord is not terror, but reverent approach. There's a wonderful place this is described in Kenneth Graham's book, The Wind in the Willows. You may recall it. Uh, You have the two characters, Rat and Mole. They're helping the otters search for one of their lost sons. It's a silvery, moonlit night. and uh, They're all out exploring the hedges and the hollows when they find themselves confronted by what they call a presence. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror, indeed. He felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing it, he knew it could only mean that some awesome presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend the rat and saw him at his side tremoring. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. The fear of the Lord is like standing in front of the most exquisite piece of art you have ever laid your eyes on. A hushed silence comes over you, and you don't want to be distracted by anything else, by the noisy tourist down the way, or the playful kids. You just want to take in the the sheer grandeur of the thing that you're standing before. That's why in a recent book, The God We Worship, Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff defines, he gives this definition of worship. He says, worship is, and I'm going to unpack it shortly here. Worship is the Godward acknowledgement of God's unsurpassable greatness whose attitudinal stance toward God is awed, reverential, and grateful adoration. Um, Yeah, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, he says it's Godward. Worship is a Godward orientation. In our everyday lives, we have 
We have many orientations. We're, we're oriented toward tasks. We are oriented toward people. And we are oriented to the created world. And as Christians, we want to honor the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all of those various everyday orientations. But in public worship, we are very intentionally changing our, our orientation so that we're no longer attending to work, creation, or people, but we're attending to, to God, to directly to God himself. And that's why, if you notice, we begin our services with a call to worship. Because the call to worship is God calling us out of the world to orient ourselves toward him and to face him. There is an intentional calling out of the world for, what, 90 minutes. Like, you got 90 minutes to give him your undivided attention. Cartoon character on King of the Hill said something that is a pretty, pretty commonly said, and that is, he says, I don't go to church. Church goes with me. I'm worshiping when I'm drinking a beer or digging a hole or fishing for trout. My sanctuary is nature. I can worship God just as much when I'm a mountain bike with friends as when I'm sitting in a pew. Well, yes, but mostly no. We're called out of those activities so that we can give our face-to-face directed focus um, and that's why we sing praises to begin our service, because we look at him and, and you can't help but explode into praise. Then we ask the Lord to search our hearts and make known to us our sin. We confess our sins. We're pardoned. Hopefully, we're then strengthened by the preaching of the word. We're strengthened by the table. And then we're sent back out into the world with good news, the good news of the gospel to, to spread. We go through that same cycle every week. You know, one of the, probably the biggest issue for someone who's unaccustomed to our cycle, uh, or to this kind of worship, the number one question they ask is just the question of insincerity. You know, most of us, of us have been taught that if something is scripted, then that thing must be insincere. If our worship services have a bulletin with all the elements of the worship service laid out beforehand, then we really can't be following the Spirit's leading. What would you say to that criticism? That if it's scripted, if it's the same, it, it's maybe not sincere. What I would say to that is absolutely, absolutely. It can be insincere if we let it become that way. Yes, we can, we can read prayers that we don't mean. We can sing songs that we don't really care about. We can basically spend 90 minutes before the face of God and be absolute hypocrites. That's why Walter Schiff argues that, that we have to have a certain attitudinal stance when we are Godward oriented. And that attitudinal stance, I don't know why he called that word, but he said that attitudinal stance is awed, reverential, and grateful adoration. If you have that attitudinal stance, then I promise you, you won't be insincere. <laughs> you know, if we realize what's happening, they're being called into the awesome presence of God, that awakens awe. If we know God's name, that name inspires reverence. If we experience God's grace and kindness, that elicits gratitude and grateful adoration. And that, I think, is what we're trying to capture in our service. What I've just said in lots of different words could be summarized in three words. Is it four words? The fear of five words. The, The Lord.
We're, we're trying to cultivate the fear of the Lord here. Finally, third point. I'll use the game of baseball as an illustration, as I am opt often to, to do. In the game of baseball, there are 40,000 people in the stands, millions of people watching on television, uh, two managers and two sets of teams in the dugout. And yet none of those opinions matter whether or not it's a ball, it's a ball or strike, whether or not they're safe or out. Fox could take an online Twitter poll and, and ask 10 million people, was the, was the base runner out? And everybody can say, yes, he's out. And you know what? The umpire doesn't care a lick. The umpire is the only one in authority. You would think that the managers would treat such an authority with a greater deference. Uh, and sometimes, many times they do, but once in a while a manager will run out of the dugout spitting tobacco, cussing, kicking dirt on the umpire's shoes, picking up the base and throwing it. And you know what? It doesn't matter. The umpire, he won't change his call. He's the authority. Well, what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 is that at the end of human history, God has appointed his son to be the judge of all mankind. Every person will go before the judgment seat. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, where they will be judged according to how they've lived. Every ball, he'll call a ball. Every strike, a strike. Uh, We will have to give an account for every word we've spoken, it says. Every click of the mouse, every letter we've texted, which, if you're anything like me, that is terrible news. You would kind of expect that 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 would make the, the list of the first mountain. There were seven things said about the first mountain, and then seven things said about the second mountain, the the seven uh, first were untouchable, a blazing fire, dark, gloomy, stormy, the sound of a trumpet which will make your ears bleed, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be given. Uh, then you get to the second mountain, and you also have a sevenfold list. A heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, and raucous celebration ready for a party. In some of the translations it says, angels and festal garb. Uh, you come to the assembly of the firstborn who are, who are enrolled in heaven. You come to the spirits of the righteous who have made perfect. All of this, you say, is great, great, and great. But stuck in the middle of the paragraph of these wonderful things is the one, it's like one of these ones is not like the other one. It says, and you come to God, the judge of all. How can that be good news? If we are like wax, if even the best part of the best men who have ever lived is unclean. If the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do to you is not fulfilled by any one of us. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. When we say that I've, I've tried my best, I've lived, I've lived a pretty good life. No, we haven't. None of us meets the needs of other people with the eagerness and the promptness and the energy with which we want them to meet our needs. We don't even come close. I, I, there hasn't been a day in my life that I've made it through, that I've worked as hard at serving other people as I serve myself. So how can then coming to God, the judge of the whole earth, be good? The answer is found in the next line. Because you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood 
of Abel. Remember, when Cain killed Abel, God came to Cain and said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was that brother's blood asking? It was asking for retribution, for vengeance, for justice, for revenge. But you have come to the one whose blood was spilled that cries out for none of those things. It cries out for grace. Jesus' blood is the blood of the Passover lamb, which covers the doorposts of the house and redeems the firstborn. Jesus' blood is a fiery coal that purifies our lips, our hands, and our hearts. You know, many commentators, and I'll close with this, many commentators have pointed out the eerie similarities between Mount Sinai and Mount Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. Think about it with me for just a second. Both were terrible places. One has terrible lightning strikes, fire, smoke. Uh, The other has terrible torture, bloodshed, thirst. Darkness draped both mountains. Clouds covered both mountains. Earthquakes shook both mountains. Both of the two mountains have this terrible voice crying out aloud. But the differences are equally vast. According to the author of Hebrews, the first mountain symbolized a holiness that was terrifying and unapproachable. Sinai, according to his writing, and you look back, Sinai was a place of certain death. If you stepped on the hillside, you immediately died. But but Calvary is a holiness that is inviting. If you step on this hillside, in fact, you are invited to do so. You are invited by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to come and see for yourself. You won't die standing on this hillside. Rather, the Son of God will die for you. The law, the Torah, was given on Mount Sinai. The Torah said, do this and you shall live. But on the other mountain... Another truth is made clear, and that is none of us keep the law. Nobody, nobody does Torah. Not Isaiah, not Moses, certainly not you or me. On the first mountain, there was fire, lightning, and smoke. On the second mountain, there were two nail-pierced legs, two nail-pierced arms, one badly torn side, because we cannot do the law and live. We can only enter into the presence of a holy God because he lived and died and lives again. Just as Isaiah foretold. Isaiah 53. Surely he bore our pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, for by his wounds we are healed. Amen.